Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, you'll learn about how your brushing routine may not be the biggest factor in whether or not you get cavities, how a new method of building pharmaceutical production facilities may bring medical access to previously underserved regions, and how the discovery of a plastic-eating bacteria could revolutionize the recycling industry. Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. Nate, you want some of this toffee? Oh, you know I'm a big fan, but I've been trying to stay off the sticky stuff, avoid the cavities. That's a good plan, but did you know that while diet and oral hygiene play a big role in getting cavities, the bacteria that live in our mouth might be responsible for how sensitive we are to tooth decay? That's pretty wild, but the thing I always wonder is, why do we get cavities at all? I would have figured that evolution would have selected for those of us who are more resistant to getting cavities. That is such a good question. You might be surprised to learn that cavities are kind of a new phenomenon. Ancient humans didn't really get cavities. In fact, when we find an ancient skull that does have a cavity, it causes quite the stir. When I was a kid, my cavities caused a stir, too. It just wasn't a very good one. It usually came with being forced to drink less soda. (laughs) Well, it might not be your fault. Cavities started becoming more common as our diet transitioned from being hunter-gatherers. As we started farming, our diet included more carbs and sugars, and our teeth started to decay. This trend really took off in the 19th century when we kicked our refining of sugar and grain into overdrive. For example, Great Britain's consumption of sugar increased fivefold between 1710 and 1770. So the boom in food production may have come at the cost of a little tooth pain. Exactly. But interestingly, researchers think it's not just what we ate, but what else was in our mouths. What else was in our mouths? A tongue? A good tune? The whispered name of a former lover? <laughs> Nate, it's it's just bacteria. Unfortunately, the biome of our modern mouth is often dominated by bacteria that cause tooth decay. Our ancient ancestors had mouths full of a wide scope of bacteria. All kinds were in there. But as our diets changed, the bacteria in our mouths became a lot less diverse. Not all of these bacteria are bad, but some of them, like Streptococcus mutans, can cause tooth decay and cavities. I can understand sugary and acidic foods causing cavities, but how would bacteria cause a cavity? These specific cavity-causing bacteria eat the sugar and carbs that build up on our teeth. Rather than cleaning it off, though, their digestion creates byproducts, which ferment to make natural acids. Those acids sit on our teeth and dissolve the enamel. Ah, like acid rain melting away marble statues. But then why do some people who brush away those acids on the regular get cavities, while others who barely pay attention to their oral hygiene don't? Nobody said life was fair, Nate. Our oral biomes are complex, and some folks have more of the cavity-causing bacteria in their biomes than others. What's wilder is that research is showing that in animals, if you put a cavity-resistant individual with other animals who are more susceptible to cavities, the animal who was resistant will start to form cavities as well. You mean they're kind of passing this bad bacteria along? Yikes, is that also true for family units then? Am I impacting my friends' and family's oral health just by being around them? In this way, cavities aren't just a hygiene thing. They're sort of a transmissible infectious disease. Research shows that knowing how susceptible to cavities the parents and daycare providers are can give us a good idea of how likely a child is to get cavities themselves. Well, if we can catch cavities, can we treat them and beat them too? Well, some researchers and scientists have wondered about rebooting our mouth biome with a spit transfer from someone whose mouth has less of the cavity-causing bacteria. But we don't know enough about mouth biomes to know if it would work or potentially make things worse. Spit transfer is even less romantic than swapping spit. It's not a kiss, Nate. It's a medical procedure. 
Yeah, if you do it wrong, it kind of feels like one. Oh, boy. Uh, plus, our biomes are constantly changing. We don't know exactly how it works yet. Right now, we have these correlations between the bacteria and cavities, but it's possible they're both caused by another thing entirely. If my doctor can't spit in my mouth for science, what can I do? Gross. Well, brush twice a day, floss, use mouthwash, and avoid refined sugars and carbs. So, the same things I have been doing? It's still good advice that will make your mouth less acidic and a less friendly environment for cavity-related bacteria like Streptococcus mutans, even if it doesn't reset your oral biome. I'm going to go brush again right now. Good. You've had something in your teeth for the last hour. Wait, what? It's really gross. Callie, I've been thinking about this restaurant I went to in New York. I am craving their soup dumplings. So why don't you order them? Well, you see, that's the thing. I live thousands of miles away. The cost of getting them to me in good quality, the work, the resources used, it's no small task. So get other soup dumplings. Other? Clearly, you have never had these soup dumplings. There is no replacement. Anyway, I've got a feeling that the scientists at BioNTech were craving soup dumplings when they came up with a new idea in vaccine manufacturing. What do you mean? Well, BioNTech, you know, the company that created the first mRNA vaccine, has developed a system to create mRNA vaccines in modular shipping containers. If the idea works, these vaccine facilities could be shipped around the world and make millions of vaccines in underserved areas each year. Ah, so they'd be easier to get to the places that need them, like your dumpling place. Grand Szechuan? Right, like Grand Szechuan opening a second location on your corner. Yes, I'd have a much easier time getting what I need. And there's so much disparity in vaccine access, and this could be the solution. Only 11% of Africa's population is fully vaccinated. Creating vaccines on the continent would make the supply easier to distribute, which could possibly help raise those numbers. So how do you go from making vaccines in a dedicated lab to making them in something normally used to ship Nintendo Switches, cheap t-shirts, and crowdfunded table games around the world? Well, vaccine production is a really complicated and specific process. Things like local temperature and atmospheric pressure all have effects on the production and machine functions. Each of those things have to be accounted for and adjusted to create a high-quality vaccine. So you have to tweak the 50,000-step mRNA vaccine recipe to fit in this new environment. It's important to note that pharmaceutical companies already do this whenever they open a new, traditional vaccine production facility. But isn't that even more challenging in a container? Yes and no. You see, these new facilities would be more standardized. Shipping containers are reliable, and the build-outs could be repeatable. They could clone facility after facility into new shipping container setups without having to worry about different dimensions or layouts. Updates would be easier to roll out as well. But is speed the biggest concern? How do we know that these facilities, which look so unimpressive, by the way, maybe unrelated, how do we know they'll make the same quality vaccines? I'm not interested in soup dumplings on my corner if they're not as good as the original. Well, this isn't dumplings. This is pharmaceutical manufacturing. If they can't keep the standards up, you'll never even see them. Right. It's not in the kitchen. These vaccine facilities will have to be given the stamp of approval by local government. Exactly. Now, if all goes well, it could significantly lower the cost of vaccine production, and each container facility could create 40 to 60 million doses a year with just four or five operators. Oh my gosh, that's a ton of doses. When do we hope to see the first container-produced vaccines? Maybe two years. Two years from now, will we still need COVID-19 mRNA vaccines? We very well might. I hope the pandemic will be far behind us at that point, and if it is, these facilities may be used to make and distribute different drugs and vaccines, like those for malaria and tuberculosis. Oh, so this isn't a short-sighted plan. 
No, BioNTech hopes the system revolutionizes how we create drugs and vaccines, not just in Africa, but in areas, especially underserved ones, all over the world. Hey, maybe next BioNTech will get into the dumpling biz, you know, put up container shops all over the place. I know vaccines are important and all, but I think they should switch their focus to that, yeah. Definitely more important. Nate, are you nervous or something? What is going on? I'm recycling. You're chewing on a water bottle. Exactly. I just heard of this thing called enzymatic depolymerization, a process that uses enzymes to break down plastics for recycling. Okay, now I see the connection. You have enzymes in your saliva, so you think your saliva is breaking down the plastic. I don't really, but I wish I did. Plastics are a huge environmental concern, and we need better solutions to deal with them. We're recycling, aren't we? Yeah, but sadly, traditional recycling, often called thermomechanical recycling, can only be done a few times before the plastic is no longer usable. Often you only get three times. Then the plastic gets too brittle to be reused anymore, and it ends up right where it would have ended up anyway. In the black bin instead of the blue bin. Exactly, in the trash, in the landfill. Or if you're a real jerk, just on the street or in the park and eventually probably in the ocean. And that's a problem. Plastics don't break down easily. They're made of these things called polymers. Polymers. Many mers? Yes. In fact, polymers are long strings of monomers. Polymers, monomers. I'm getting that plastics and mer are related. So plastic man is merman. All those plastic ornaments at Christmas, they're made of frankincense and mers. Plastics made of hushed words are... Uh, uh, murmurs. You got it. Okay, <laughs> so tell me, Nate, how do we solve the mer problem? Well, for one, you make and use less plastic in the first place. That's the biggest one. You reduce, then reuse, then recycle. That's the order for a reason. Okay, so assuming we've reduced and reused, now we need to recycle. What's the move? Basically, you're hoping to turn the polymers from the plastics into monomers, which you can then build back into new polymers. And these new plastics will be like brand new. If you can do this successfully, you can do that essentially forever, not just three times and then into the bin. And that's where enzymatic depolymerization comes in. Depolymerization. I get it. Breaking down plastics. And then enzymatic is using enzymes. Bingo. Enzymes are really interesting. Organisms of all kinds use them to break down chemicals into other things. We digest food this way into energy and other component resources. And in 2016, scientists at the Kyoto Institute of Technology and Keio University, both in Japan, discovered a bacteria that can digest an incredibly common plastic called PET down to its monomers using two enzymes. It's a bacteria that eats plastic? Exactly. It was a monumental find. And though enzymatic depolymerization had been around before then, it really started taking off once they found this special combo of enzymes. And scientists in the field have been improving on those enzymes ever since through genetic modification. The big goal is to be able to make all those old plastics good as new and eventually eliminate the need to make new plastics at all. That is a lofty goal. Indeed it is. I mean, okay, it all seems great in theory. So what are the downsides here? Well, for one, you're always competing against making new plastic. Is that easier? It's way easier. Those methods and technologies have long been established, made efficient, and cost-effective. And there are stores of petroleum just waiting to be used for that very purpose. The price of oil is cheap, too. So until they can make the actual recycling cheaper than making the new stuff, it's going to be hard to convince companies to do it. Another downside is that it uses more energy. Ah, uh, that's not great. An interesting counter-argument to that comes from the chief science officer at Carbios, a French company working to commercialize enzymatic depolymerization. He says that the traditional methods aren't even really recycling. How's that? 
They're extending the life of the plastic by a couple uses, but since it's not infinitely recyclable, well, it's like we were saying before. All that stuff ends up in the bin. Eventually, yeah. So more energy, but for something that really works. Also, it does take less energy to recycle this way than it does to make the PET in the first place. Another downside is that there are plastics this may never work for, like polystyrene and PVC. They have strong carbon-carbon bonds that enzymes might never be able to break down. So we still got to reduce, then reuse, then recycle. As always. So what's next for enzymatic depolymerization? Develop a process to recycle blended materials. A lot of PET out in the world is mixed with other materials and therefore isn't easy to break down this way. Stuff like that isn't recycled, it's thrown out. And then, of course, there are needed policy changes. In Europe, things are beginning to shift. Policies are being enacted that incentivize the use of recycled plastics over virgin plastic. Well, that's a boon. And with oil prices rising, it's possible the balance will shift and recycling will be the more viable option, even from a capitalistic standpoint. Well, if this doesn't work out, I think we can all agree it'll be a major plastic made out of the British word for butt. What? It'll be a bummer. Callie, you are so fired. Yep, yep, I get that. That's fair. Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. While brushing, flossing, and watching your diet will help you avoid cavities, new research shows that some might slip through from an unexpected source, bacteria. While our oral biome is full of bacteria, some are more prone to break down our enamel and cause cavities in even the most rigorous brushers. Vaccine production might soon be going global and local. Pharmaceutical company BioNTech has developed a new system to ship vaccine production facilities around the world built inside shipping containers. If it works, the system could vastly increase distribution, lower costs, all while maintaining vaccine quality. Innovation in recycling shows promise for the goal of recycling plastics indefinitely compared to current methods, which can only recycle a given plastic a few times. Companies like Carbios are using enzymes to break down the plastic polymers into their component parts to be remade anew. Hopefully, they will make the need for new plastics obsolete. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our Discovery executive producer is Christina Bavetta. Our Discovery coordinating producer is Krishna San Nicholas. This show is hosted by us, Callie and Nate. Our head writer and senior producer is Joey Scavuzzo. Additional writing comes from James Lynch and Matt Mayer. Our researcher is Rachel Wilde. Sound design, audio engineering, and editing by Nick Carissimi. I'm Callie. And I'm Nate. We'll see you next week.